Good morning, Oaks Church. Uh, if we haven't met yet, my name is Terry Lee. I'm one of the pastors here. I want to take the opportunity to go ahead and dismiss our junior Oaks. If you are one of our kindergarten through fifth graders, you can make your way back to your junior Oaks volunteers. You guys are going to be learning some awesome stuff while we are in here. And we'll see you uh, a little bit later whenever we get to worship and sing together again. Now, if you have your copy of God's Word, go ahead and find Romans chapter 8. As you just saw in that video, we're continuing our series through the book of Romans, seeing these foundations of faith that were uh, laid out for us by the Apostle Paul that we are studying again this morning. Uh, Now, I I want to send greetings from Miami. I missed you guys last week. I was with the mission team in Miami visiting one of our partner churches there. Many of you guys know that we've partnered with the Brook Church in Miami for the past five years. And it was great to just see all that God is doing there. Uh, It reminded me of the end of uh, the letter of Philippians whenever Paul is saying um, what is happening in uh, places around the world is, uh, is fruit of what God is doing. And that increase uh, you are a part of. And so I want to say to the Oaks Church, God is doing great things in Miami as a result of your sacrificial generosity uh, of your prayers that we get to be a part of what he's doing there is an awesome thing. I'm grateful to um, pastor a church that not only cares about what God is doing in Cincinnati, but also around the world. Now we're going to look at Romans chapter 8. I also had some FOMO not being here last week. So let me make that clear too. I like, you know, hearing all these texts and like, oh, worship was so great today. And Jimmy knocked it out of the park. And I wish you could hear it. And I wish you could have been here. And so I was like, oh, I wanted to be in two places at once. And so I'm really glad to be here this morning. Now, as we look at Romans 8, specifically verses 9 through 11, we're going to look at the person of the Holy Spirit. And as I was thinking about this passage, I was reminded of a conversation that we had around our dinner table a couple weeks ago. Uh, So we're sitting there, it's me and Abby and Brooks and Charlie, our five-year-old and our two-year-old. And, you know, in the middle of conversation, Brooks just looks at us and says, so how did you guys meet? And I was like, what What are you like, you know, 25? He's five. And so it was uh, an interesting break in the conversation from the typical like superheroes and monster trucks. And so, you know, then we proceeded to take him down memory lane. And I was like, the year was 2001, right? That dates us, doesn't it? Uh, the year was sixth grade whenever I began attending this church with a friend of mine. And that's whenever I met Adams, whenever I met your mom, my wife. Uh, we had to share that, you know, kind of walking through that with him. This is... This is whenever I first met her. So you could say that I knew her then. And yet, what I went on to say is, and now I know her so much better. Uh, over you know, the past 21 years that I've known her, uh, even though it took me eight years to work up the courage from the first time we met to asking her out on our first date. Um, I don't know what the issue was. Probably the bowl cut that I had until 14. Uh, <laughs> it didn't, didn't do me any favors, we'll say that much. Uh, so junior year of college, I took her on our first date. I could have proposed to her on the spot. We were such good friends. We had birthday parties together. Our birthdays were only three days apart. But, like we knew each other. And then at the same time, you know that the more that you get to know someone, you understand who they are better. There's a depth of knowledge. Uh, and so I think about, you know, this is one of the things people ask me often. Like what was the biggest surprise in parenting, becoming a parent? And I normally tell them, Seeing, seeing a depth of your spouse's sacrificial love that you thought you knew that now you know so much better. Um, over the years of marriage, being married to me for over 10 years, seeing her patience 
and grace in a way that was evident in the vows that we made each other, and it played out over those years. And so here's my point that I'm, that I'm trying to make in saying all this. If there is more to be known, if there's more depth of knowledge to be known about another finite human that perhaps you know better than anyone else, then how much more can we know about the God who saved us? What, what unsearchable depths lie before us in Scripture whenever we think about who God is? The God who creates, the God who saves, the God who redeems, the God who extends grace, the God who is just and unwavering and immutable. He's unchanging. How much more is there to know about God? And as I've studied this passage this week, it has sent me all throughout the pages of Scripture, like flipping from the front to the back and looking at words again afresh, maybe that I've seen again and again. And my refrain has been the same as Paul's in Romans 11.33. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, the depth. That sonar systems can search the, the parts of the sea that are so dark that no person has gone into them to measure them. And Paul says nothing can measure the depth and the riches and the grace of God. And so what we'll do this morning, which can be a thimble of God's richness, God's mercy, God's grace, God's love. How foolish we would be to think that we have somehow comprehended all that God might want to reveal about himself. What might God want you to know this morning about his unwavering faithfulness? Is that something that you need to be reminded of this morning? What would God want you to know about his immeasurable grace whenever you feel like you're stuck in the cycle of sin Or when that person feels too far to be reached with the gospel, what might God want you to know about his steadfast love to sinners and to sufferers? See, today we will fix our eyes on an often overlooked person, the Holy Spirit, God, the Holy Spirit. Everything that we know about God is made known to us through the person of the Holy Spirit. And so we will look at uh, what it means to consider who the Holy Spirit is. We see that all throughout Romans 8, but specifically in verses 9 through 11, we're invited into a closer look. Now, to set things up, I'm just going to look at a few verses this morning, verses 9 through 11. Um, and this probably won't be the sermon that was tip- would typically be preached out of this text, but I tell, I'll tell you why I'm doing that. Uh, because Jimmy covered these verses last week. And so, if anything, I'm just seeking to build upon the foundation that was already laid in last week's sermon. Uh, This sermon is necessary because I don't think it is a stretch to say that the doctrine of the Holy Spirit has fallen on hard times. Um, In some Christian circles, he is completely neglected. This doctrine is neglected. Perhaps we are somewhat guilty of that as Baptists. Maybe we're confused by the experiential nature that is often associated with the Holy Spirit. Maybe we're scared of the Holy Ghost. But what we see in Scripture is that he calms our fears. Through the word of God. I totally expect you to laugh there. So that's okay. That's on me for doing that to you. Okay. But, but maybe we, we come to this doctrine of, of scripture about the Holy Spirit and, and we're confused or, or we don't know what to believe. And so we just kind of step away from it and we're okay with our misunderstanding or our lack of understanding. Unfortunately, misunderstanding the Holy Spirit has led many into heresy. So 
If you think about a group like the Mormons, uh, they believe that the Holy Spirit is a third God. And so they deny the oneness of God in that way. They uh, go against what Scripture teaches, and it kind of leads them into error. Uh, The Jehovah's Witnesses would say that the Holy Spirit is not a person of the Trinity, but that he is an impersonal force. He's just kind of a power, but he's not a person. And what we see is that Scripture is clear when it comes to who the Holy Spirit is. When we look at throughout the church, um, throughout the world, some denominations or churches, they obsess about the Holy Spirit to the point that the Holy Spirit then takes precedence over Christ and his work. And on the other, other hand, some barely mention him at all. Our goal isn't simply to be balanced whenever we think about who the Holy Spirit is, but to be biblical whenever we think about who the Holy Spirit is. And that is where Romans 8 comes in. So what we will find is that there is more to this person of God than we currently know or could ever know. And at the same time, Romans 8 invites us to know him deeper. So here's, here's how you would summarize what we're going to talk about this morning. If you are in Christ, then the Spirit gives you life. If you are in Christ, the Spirit gives you life. If you are a Christian, some of what we will do in our first question that we're answering this morning will be to kind of undergird and support things that you already experience as a believer. Maybe give you some language, some scripture references to what you already know to be true. And so just to kind of bring you up to speed as to where we are at before we look at verses 9 through 11. When you get to Romans 8, we've often said this is, this is the greatest chapter in the Bible. We've said it every way to, to say it. We've said this is the tallest tree in the forest or the you know, greatest mountain in the range or the diamond in the ring. Like insert your superlative here. We can't say enough about Romans 8. And yet what we miss sometimes in going slow through a book of the Bible is the weight that we felt at the end of Romans 3. Do you remember that? Like Romans 1, you've got the divine power of God revealed in his wrath toward sin. You see that both the religious and those that desire nothing to do with God are condemned before him because of how holy he is. No one is good. No one is righteous. And then you get to the end of chapter 3, feeling weighed down under that burden of sin. And then you see that this gift is offered in eternal life. This truth of justification. That because of what Christ did on the cross to take the penalty of your sin. And because he bestows his righteousness upon you that you can have life. It, those chapters, Romans 3 through 5, seem to perform spiritual CPR on us. With that truth of justification. And the breath that it breathes into us is the reality That because the Holy Spirit now indwells in us, we can be sanctified. That we can be gradually changed. That we can become more like Christ. So we're going to read verse 1 again to kind of get our starting spot. Then we're going to look at verses 9 through 11. As as Paul explains, like we saw last week, that there are those that are in the flesh and there are those that are in the Spirit. And so whenever you get to the end of verse 8, you're kind of left wondering, which one am I? Am I in the flesh or am I in the spirit? So we're going to ask three questions today. Hopefully clear up any confusion or questions that you might have in that. And then, uh, and then we'll be on our way. Let's look at Romans 8, 1, verses 9 through 11. All right, verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So we start. Now go down to verse 9. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. 
Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. Three questions this morning. One, who is the Holy Spirit? Two, how do I know if I'm indwelled by the Holy Spirit? And three, how do I live life in the Holy Spirit? A ton of time on the first one, a little bit of time on the second one, short time on the third one. All right, question number one, who is the Holy Spirit? Who is the Holy Spirit? Who are we talking about? Well, before we see what the Holy Spirit does, we need to know who he is. And if you look at the scripture in front of you, you will see in verse 9 that the Holy Spirit is described as someone that you are in. It says, you, however, not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. That describes his relationship to every believer. Then you keep reading in verse 9, and you see that he is called the Spirit of God. Well, this is to show his relationship with the Father. Then you keep going. There's another descriptor. It says, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ. So he's been called the Spirit person. He's been called the Spirit of God, referring to his relationship with the Father. Now he's been called the Spirit of Christ to refer to his relationship with the Son. And what we see here is that the entire Trinitarian doctrine of who God is is contained in this one verse. In one verse, we bear witness to both the personal nature of the Holy Spirit to the believer and also the Holy Spirit's relationship with the entire Trinity. So this morning, we will use this first bit of time to consider who the Holy Spirit is. And in theological circles, this study, this doctrine of the Holy Spirit is called pneumatology. All right? So I want us to all try saying that together on the count of three. Pneumatology, okay? One, two, three. Pneumatology. That's great. So now whenever you're, you know, you go to work tomorrow morning, they say, hey, what did you do this weekend? Say, I learned about pneumatology. And if your coworkers didn't think you were weird before, they will now. Well, what does that mean? It's the study of the spirit. Ology is the study of pneuma. It is the word that means wind, breath, spirit. And so here we come to uh, this passage that kind of welcomes us into the study of who the Holy Spirit is. Now, at the risk of some of you thinking, TL is preaching a topical sermon this morning on the you know, Holy Spirit. You know who you are. Uh, we need moments like this that immerse us under the flood of Scripture to all, to all help us understand who God is because who you know God to be is the most important thing about you. There's nothing more important than who you know God to be. It, it, would, it would be dangerous, it would be foolish of me to assume that we all have the same understanding of the Holy Spirit. Many of you know what you believe. Right? I, knew, I know who the Holy Spirit is. I know kind of where to go. But, but maybe you're not quite sure how to explain it, and I hope this sermon is a help to you. Maybe you want a clearer understanding of this sermon or the doctrine of the Holy Spirit because uh, you're responsible for teaching other people in a missional community group. You're teaching little oaks, and man, whenever kids ask you questions, that's whenever it's like the hardest to explain anything because you're like, I've got a narrow vocabulary to try to explain this huge truth. Maybe you're leading someone, you're discipling someone, and you want to know, okay, how do I kind of take Scripture and inform someone about who the Holy Spirit is. One of the best places to start in this doctrine is in our starting point class because we briefly cover this and then we give you a ton of scripture to go and study at home as to who the person of the Holy Spirit is. I'm hoping at the very least to create a baseline in this sermon 
so that we all mean the same thing whenever we talk about the Holy Spirit and who he is. So let's get to know him. Now, I'll also say, because of the experiential nature that many Christians attribute to the Holy Spirit, which I think is a good thing, some of you might find yourself thinking right now, if you're kind of leaning more into that category, I don't need a bunch of scripture, let alone confessional creeds about the Holy Spirit. I just need to experience him. I just need to experience the Holy Spirit. Don't give, don't give me all that. I just want to experience him. And I want to argue that we need both. You see, whenever our mission team went to Miami last week, the first place that we went after we landed was straight to the Atlantic Ocean. We got our rental car, we drove straight to the Atlantic Ocean, punched in the GPS. Whenever we were there, Kelsey Bone Camp, she, I mean, she couldn't be stopped, right? She's going straight to the water. She took off her shoes, she rolled up her jeans, and she stepped into the water. And she was just like, this is my happy place, right? Um, now, here's the deal. We got there, we got to that destination and into the ocean by pulling up the map on our GPS. The map, it gave us all of the information we needed. It told us where to park. It told us how uh, the, the ocean was connected to the Floridian coast. It showed us how to find that spot that we were then standing in and personally experiencing it. Now, let me say this. The map was not less real than the ocean we were standing in. In fact, it informed the experience that we had. We were able to stand in one square foot of the ocean experientially and simultaneously understand how vast and expansive it was at the same time. As Christians, we are called both to stare at the map and stand in the ocean. To stare at the map to understand the truth of who God is and to stand in the ocean to experience firsthand who God is. We should know how vast and incomprehensible this doctrine of the Holy Spirit is through Scripture. And at the same time, long for a deeper personal experience of these truths. So where do we begin? First, we must begin with the Trinity. The one true God is a triune God. He is three in one, eternally existing as three persons of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Each of these persons share in one divine nature and are equal in essence. The three persons are inseparable. They are inseparable. They are one. And at the same time, they are distinct in their terms of roles and relations. So that distinction is called the economy of the Trinity, the different roles that each person plays. And, and then their oneness, the nature that they all share is their ontology, who God is. For example, all three persons are God. Right? This might be helpful to, to kind of put all this together. All three persons are God. Uh, but the Father did not die for your sins. The Son did. Right? So all God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and yet distinct roles. So the question, who is the Holy Spirit, can be answered in this way. The Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity. He is equal in terms of nature, power, and glory with the Father and the Son. And to be worshipped together with them. Now, I see you feverishly writing. And if you can get this as we go... You, you're welcome to it. Our notes are always in the weekly email, and I'm going to keep moving kind of fast because we have so much ground to cover. Uh, so there's, there's a lot that I, that I want to fit into this sermon, and we only have a little bit of time. But we see this truth on display when Jesus is baptized. If someone ever asks you, well, where do you see the, the, the full trinity in Scripture? 
Well, you see it whenever the Son of God is baptized and he comes up out of the water. The Holy Spirit descends on the Son like a dove. And then the, the voice of the Father rings through the heavens and says, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. All three persons of the Trinity present. You see it in the way that Jesus gives the Great Commission. Because he says, Go therefore to all nations. Right? Baptizing them in the name, singular, one name, in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. You would almost expect him to say, in the names of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. What does it do? He shows this unity, this oneness that was declared in Deuteronomy 6, 4, that the Lord is one. And we see that God is three persons. God is one in three and the Holy Spirit is one of the three. And in fact, this might help you because... Uh, Protestants and Roman Catholics agree on this truth. Uh, in 325, the Nicene Creed came about. It was uh, then uh, revamped in 381. It became the Nicene Constantinopolitan Creed. I don't know. You figured it out. I, I've tried all week. Um, but here's what the church came together and said. They said, I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified, who spoke by the prophets. This has always been the official doctrine of the church. Now, some people give critique here, and they say, well, this, this didn't come about until 325. But what you have to understand is the precipice that led to this creed being formed was the heresy of Arius. That that he was going against this doctrine that had always been the teaching of the church. And that's how creeds were normally formed. Uh, People started getting it backwards or mixed up. And so the church came together and said, no, we have to affirm this which we already believe. Think about it. uh, If you go to a pool and you see a sign on the shallow end that says, no diving. And it's only three feet of water. Now, you don't look at that sign and think, huh, diving here must have been all right before, before this sign was here. No, you say they had to put a sign here. Uh, they had to put this, post it right here so that every person knew not to dive here because someone did and they got seriously injured. Well, creeds work in the same way. The church comes together and says, hey, this has always been the case, but we must put this sign here so that everyone knows this is what the church has always and historically believed coming all the way from the teaching of Scripture and held throughout the ages so that people aren't injured by a misunderstanding of the truth. So how do we get to know the Holy Spirit better? Well, it is through the God-breathed Scripture in front of us. I think whenever we often think about the Holy Spirit, if someone's like, hey, can you show me a, a passage of Scripture that teaches me more about the Holy Spirit? I think a lot of people want to head straight to the book of Acts. Right? That's whenever you see the day of Pentecost and people go straight there. But what if I told you that you couldn't get past the first paragraph of Scripture before you already see the Holy Spirit at work? Because that's the truth. Uh, we find in the opening page of Genesis 1, Genesis 1-2, that the Holy Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. You see, the doctrine of the Holy Spirit is progressively revealed throughout Scripture. Like a sun that is rising on a mountain range, what changes over time is not the mountains in front of you, but your ability to clearly see them in front of you. And the doctrine of the Holy Spirit is the same way. We see him in Genesis 1-2, the Spirit of God hovering over the waters in creation. 
Then the Old Testament continues. We find that he's the presence of God in the world. He's God's presence to the people of Israel. He is the Shekinah glory of God that led the Israelites through the wilderness in both cloud and fire. In Deuteronomy 32, 10 through 11, he's hovering over the people. The same word that's used in Genesis 1 to, to both, both protect and preserve them. We see in Numbers 27, 18 that he prepared Joshua to lead God's people through and to the promised land. He explicitly stirred the hearts of four of the judges that we see in the book of Judges. He rushed upon David when he was anointed as king in 1 Samuel 16, 12 through 13. He has superintended the entire process of bringing this scripture to us from Genesis to Revelation. As 2 Peter 1.21 says, For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Why do we believe that every word of this scripture is inerrant and true? It is because it was superintended by the Holy Spirit through men. He empowered prophets, priests, and kings to perform tasks and proclaim God's messages. One of those messages was that there would one day come a spirit-anointed Messiah. That he would come and that he would, pour, he would pour out God's spirit on people. The prophet Joel told of a future moment in which God would pour his spirit out in Joel 2.29. Both Ezekiel and Jeremiah looked to the day in which the spirit of God would replace the old covenant of the law with a new covenant relationship and dwell within every believer. And then you get to the New Testament. The opening pages of the New Testament bring that promise a little closer to fulfillment. John the Baptist spoke of the Messiah that had come who would not just baptize with water, but would baptize with the Holy Spirit. And Jesus was indeed that promised Messiah. And so how? How did the eternally pre-existent Son, who has always existed, take on flesh incarnate? He was conceived in the womb of the Virgin Mary by the Holy Spirit. And then on the day of Christ's baptism, he was anointed and empowered by the Holy Spirit for the work of ministry. Jesus, the Son of God, operated in the fullness of the Holy Spirit. And then during his ministry, he promises to send the Holy Spirit to all who would believe, saying in John 14, 16 through 17, and I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper, the paraclete, to be with you forever. You know him for he dwells with you and he will be in you. The Holy Spirit is that helper. As we just sang about, John 7 tells us that the Holy Spirit in your life would be like rivers of flowing water welling up within you. And that indwelling presence, the Holy Spirit would come, but at great cost to Christ. You see, he first had to be crucified. He would atone for our sins through his death. He would be resurrected to life. He would be seated on the throne. The Holy Spirit raised Christ from the dead and brought about the birth of the church in the same way that he brought about the birth of Christ. Before Jesus ascended to heaven, he told his disciples that he would be with them always in Matthew 28 through 20. How does he keep that promise? Through the person of the Holy Spirit in Acts 1. He gives them this great mission and then he says, but wait, don't tell anybody yet. Don't tell anybody what you've seen yet. Don't talk about what has happened here yet because there is still something yet to come in Acts 1-8 that you will receive the power of the Holy Spirit. He will come upon you. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, 
and to Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And then Acts 2, the day of Pentecost happens. The Holy Spirit is poured out. Joel's prophecy from Joel 2 in the Old Testament comes to pass. The church was born. The Holy Spirit formed a new community of people that had become a new creation. In the same way that the Holy Spirit brought about creation in Genesis 1, he convicts and converts sinners to become a new creation in Christ Jesus. As described by 2 Corinthians 5.17, you are now a new creation, pulling all the way back from what he did in Genesis 1-2 to now making it present in your life. Throughout the rest of the New Testament and in our everyday lives, we see the work of the Holy Spirit on full display. He dwells within us. As 1 Corinthians 3.16 says, we are now the temple of God, the Holy Spirit. Christ was Emmanuel, God with us. The Holy Spirit is God in us. You see that that this doctrine of the Holy Spirit is beautiful. We cannot spend enough time talking about who he is, and now he is in us. You see, a couple weeks ago, whenever we were going door-to-door and inviting people to fall kickoff, uh, Connor and I, we were going from house to house throughout the neighborhood. And after a while, you you would notice, uh, I don't think anybody lives in that house. Uh, You would begin to walk up to the door, and you would see that the grass was high, and that uh, there was mail in the mailbox that just kind of couldn't even fit in there anymore because it was coming out. There were no lights that were on. Because no one dwelled there, it was noticeably different. Well, here in Romans 8, 9 through 11, Paul is talking about the reality of the life that is indwelled with the Holy Spirit of God, that it looks Different. The word that he used for, uses for dwells is the verb form of the word house, oikos. He says oike. The person that has the Holy Spirit is indwelled by the Holy Spirit. And whenever the Spirit takes up residence in you, you look different on the outside. When the person that we just described from Genesis to Revelation in Scripture is in your life, you live different. It's noticeable. How do we see that in our lives? I want to quickly give you 24 ways that the Holy Spirit is at work within us. Quickly, right? I know. I do this every week. The Holy Spirit comforts the fearful. Let these sink in. I would imagine that that there are several that almost feel like they have your name written on them. And this is yours if you are in the Spirit. The Holy Spirit comforts the fearful. He helps us remember the words of Jesus when we're prone to doubting or disbelief. He bears witness about Christ and his work. He convicts unbelievers of their sin to see their need for Christ. He convicts us of sin, John 16, 9. He guides us into discerning the truth. Whenever there's something you can't figure it out, he guides us into discerning the truth. He glorifies Christ. This is important. It's often the case that whenever gifts of the Holy Spirit take center stage in in a church or a denomination, that they kind of get the glory. And yet, what do we see in John 16, 14? That any time the Holy Spirit is working, he's saying, not me, Christ, all glory to Christ. It's not making much of the person who has the gift, it makes much of Christ. Seven, he empowers us to share the gospel. He pours the love of God into our hearts. He proves that we belong to God. He raises us from the dead when Christ returns. He adopts us into the family of God. He intercedes for us. He fills us with joy and peace. 
He imparts knowledge about God. He gives us spiritual gifts to serve the church. He creates Christian fellowship. He bears fruit in us. He gives assurance of salvation to us. He unites the church to Christ and to one another. He seals us until Christ returns. He changes our hearts through regeneration and renews us, as Katie just read in Titus chapter 3. He helps us to pray. He makes us holy. His name is the Holy Spirit. Now he lives in us. Therefore, he makes us holy. And he applies the totality of the work of Christ to you. That's why we can't overlook the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. That's why we need this. That's why we need this to wash over us. Because these things are true for every single person who is in Christ. And yet we still have some questions. Some people wonder, okay, well, well, how can we call him a person and not just an impersonal force? Well, in John 14, 6, Jesus said that the Holy Spirit would be another comforter. In the same way that Christ was a person, the Holy Spirit is a person. He teaches like a person teaches in John 14, 26. He is aggrieved when people sin, Ephesians 4, 30. He can be lied to. He sends out missionaries. Acts 3, 2 through 3 says, While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said... Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. He redirects. We see that in Acts 16.6. Not only that, he is a person. He is also fully God because he has attributes that can only be spoken of as God. He's omnipresent. Psalm 139.7. David says, where could I go from your presence? Where could I go from your spirit? You are everywhere. He's eternal, called the eternal spirit in Hebrews 9.14. He is sovereign. John 3 says that the wind goes where it wishes the spirit moves as he pleases. He is omniscient. 1 Corinthians 2, 10 through 11. He knows all the breadth and height of God because he is God. He is the creator. He is called God. There's this interesting episode in Acts 5 where Ananias and Sapphira, the church has started. Everybody's giving their stuff. They say, you know, we sold this piece of property and we're going to give it all to the church. And yet they held some of it back for themselves. And so Peter's like, did you really give it all? We kind of know how much you sold it for. We know how much was given. Like, are you telling the truth? Verse 3, but Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? Who did he lie to? The Holy Spirit. And keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land while it remained unsold. But did, not, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. You lied to the Holy Spirit. And Peter says, you have lied to God. 1 Corinthians 6.19 says that we are indwelled with the Holy Spirit and therefore now are the temple of God. Once again, synonymous. The Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity. He is God. So now we know who the Holy Spirit is. We've scratched the surface, right? I would love for you to take some of those verses that we just looked at and Maybe glance at them again this week. So now we come to our second question. How do I know if I'm indwelled by the Holy Spirit? How do I know? Paul gives three conditional statements in verses 9 through 11. And if you are an underliner in your Bible, you will see that the word if is used three times. And each time that you see the word if, you will see that it is a conditional statement to point to being indwelled with the Holy Spirit or not. Now, this can be a test, but Paul did not mean this to be a test. He wanted this to be an assurance and comfort that the Christians in the church in Rome were, in fact, filled with the Holy Spirit, indwelled with the Holy Spirit. And so the way that I've set up the answer is that the Spirit of God dwells in you if, if you're unsure and you want to use this as a test, 
Or you can insert the word since because these things are true of you as a Christian and that should give you a lot of hope. So you're not like, well, I don't know if I'm indwelled by the Holy Spirit or not. I don't know if I belong to God or not. I don't know if I'm declared righteous or not. And these verses should be a great comfort to you whenever we read this. So the Spirit of God dwells in you if or since you are no longer in the flesh but belong to God. That's proof one. You are no longer in the flesh but belong to God. That's why this matters so much. I want you to see the weight and significance of this. Because in verse 9, Paul says, You, however, are not in the flesh but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. So what is at stake here? Belonging to God or not? How do you receive God's mercy and grace? How do you know that your sin no longer stands as guilt against you? How do you know that God's just wrath has been satisfied on your behalf? How do you know if you belong to God, the Holy Spirit? And in verse 8, what we saw last week is it is impossible for someone who does not have the Spirit to please God. You can't breathe underwater without gills, and you can't please God without the work of the Holy Spirit in your life. And here Paul draws a contrast in verse 9. He says, you, however... He distinguishes between two groups of people, and he says, You, however, are not in the flesh if these things are true of you. If, in fact, you have the Spirit. If, in fact, you have the Spirit of God dwelling within you. That word, you, is not only referring to the Christians in the church in Rome, but it is applied to every person who is called upon the name of Jesus Christ as Savior. How do you know that you are indwelled by the Holy Spirit? Because you have confessed Jesus is Lord and because you have said that he is Lord over my life. Look at 1 Corinthians 12, 3. It says, no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. Is that your confession? Do you believe that Jesus is Lord? And do you now set your mind on the Spirit because the reality is that you are in the Spirit? If you can say that, then you should know that you are indwelled by the Holy Spirit. Well, now this brings up another question. Well, when is someone indwelled with the Holy Spirit? Well, what tense does Paul use here as he talks to every single Christian in the church in Rome? He uses the present tense. The Holy Spirit now dwells in you. This is an active reality. He doesn't say, hey, if you have experienced uh, something, you know, kind of as a secondary experience where um, this emotion came over you and you were baptized with the Holy Spirit, then now the Holy Spirit dwells in you. And yet that is the teaching of some people. Uh, some churches that you are baptized with the Holy Spirit. And that's normally symbolized by um, a, a speaking in tongues or some other um, outward experience. Now, uh, I want to tread lightly here because this, that, is, that is the type of congregation that I was saved in. Right? So I came to know the gospel in an Assembly of God church. A lot of my family is still a part of it. And yet, what we don't want to do is to teach contrary to Scripture that there are different levels of Christians that, that you can be converted and you can be a Christian and then you are somehow filled with the Holy Spirit later as some kind of second act that happens that now makes you like a, a better, more spiritual Christian. Now, your, your experience with the Holy Spirit um, and your awareness of him might wax and wane over time. And yet the reality that you are indwelled with the Spirit is a truth that happens in the moment of conversion, that you are filled with the Holy Spirit. What you see in the book of Acts where there are subsequent experiences are more to establish apostolic authority over people and in the church than to describe a normative pattern for the church. Now, I've, I've experienced this firsthand because whenever I was about 10 years old in my Assemblies of God church, uh, 
uh, my pastor brought me up and said, all right, today is the day that you are going to receive the gift of tongues. And I'm like, all right, I was open to it. And he uh, prayed with intensity, had his hand on me, the whole church was watching, and he kept praying, and nothing happened. It was like one of the most awkward moments in my life. Um, I jokingly say that was the day that I became Baptist. Uh, whenever I was like standing there, I'm like, nothing, nothing is happening. happening. Um, and, and yet, while, while the desire to experience the presence of the Holy Spirit, the power of the Holy Spirit is a, is a good thing, we don't want people to feel like they are B-level Christians. And I, I know even in our church, we have different views on the extent to which the gifts operate in the church. Jimmy teaches a great equip class on that, and I invite you to be a part of it. And so I'm not going to talk about that right now, but here's what I do want you to know. If you have trusted in Christ and you have said Jesus is Lord, then you are fully and completely indwelled by the Holy Spirit. And that is why Paul can use the present tense here. Not only that, I want you to see the second proof. You know that the Holy Spirit is in you if you're united to Christ and declared righteous. We were faced with unavoidable death. That's what we saw last week. That there is condemnation for those who are not in Christ. Through our willful rebellion and sin against God, we laid ourselves on the track of death with the oncoming wrath of God. And unless someone steps in and rips us from those tracks, we will die an eternal death. And Christ has stepped in. Verse 10 says, if Christ is in you, Although the body is dead, although you, even though you're in Christ, you experience the, the, the pain of death, the reality of death, the decaying fact that death is, the decaying fact that death is now destroying your body and you will one day die. That is true of you. And yet you have been declared righteous and you will be forever with God because of the work of Christ. Now, let me say this. If you have ever talked to someone who has had a near death experience then you know that they now completely live different after that fact. And they'll talk about it. Yeah, I mean, this card came right at me. I swerved, and man, I just realized how much my family matters at that moment. Or, or there I was, and our, our plane had serious turbulence. We skidded across the runway, and the first thing that I wanted to do whenever I got off that plane was to call my mom and tell her I loved her. Whenever people have a near-death experience, they then live differently afterwards. And what Paul says in verse 10 is that your body was once dead, and your current body is dying. But because you have been declared righteous in Christ, you have received life. Now go and live differently. Live in light of that, that it is both a present hope and a future promise. Proof three, you have eternal life and will be raised from death to life. How do you know if the Holy Spirit dwells in you? Because you have eternal life that's present and you will be raised from death to life. How can we have eternal life as a present hope? Well, one of the most prominent attributes of God is that he is eternal. That there is never a time that he was not. And there will never be a time that he will not be. He is eternal God. And now... The Holy Spirit, who is eternal, has taken up residence in you, which is why eternal life can be a present reality and a promise for you now. Because the eternal Holy Spirit dwells within you. He has taken up residence in you, which means you now have a fullness of life that you could have never had before. Verse 11 provides great comfort, does it not? He says, the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead now dwells in you. Present tense, he dwells in you. He has taken up residence in you. He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life 
to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Not bios, not the Greek word that refers to biology and that you keep breathing, but zoe, that there is this expansive life that is now given to you in Christ that you could have never gained before on your own. Verse 11 provides great comfort for you if you are battling with sin. If right now you are fearful of your eternal state or you're apathetic in your obedience. In verse 11, it is as if Paul is grabbing us by the shoulder and leading us to the empty tomb of Christ. He is inviting us to look in and see that it is vacant and to behold the power of the Holy Spirit that now dwells within you. Do you feel powerless right now to some addiction that seems to have its hold on you? Look at the empty tomb of Christ. Are you discouraged in your ministry? Look at the empty tomb of Christ and behold the power of the Holy Spirit in you. Does it feel like sickness or death has won in your life or in your family? Look at the empty tomb and behold the power of the Holy Spirit and the promise for the future. Does the mission to reach our city and world feel too great? Look at the empty tomb. The same Holy Spirit that raised Christ from the dead is now at work within you. And this will be our hope for eternal life. Ephesians 1, 13 through 14 says, In him you also were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. He's our guarantee. The Holy Spirit acts as a down payment for the full purchase of us that God will bring in eternity through receiving all of the benefits of salvation that we now experience in part. The Holy Spirit is like an engagement ring that promises us that one day our groom will return and make all things new. So how do you live in the Holy Spirit? You live in the Holy Spirit by setting your mind on the Spirit. You see, being in the flesh and in the Spirit is all about position, right? Where are you at positionally before Christ, apart from Christ, before you say, I'm a sinner in need of grace and Christ is my Savior, you are in the flesh. And the only thing you can set your mind on is the flesh. But being in the Spirit, now you set your mind on things of the Spirit. Your position changes in Christ. You are now in the Spirit, and yet your responsibility is to daily set your mind on the things of the Spirit. On Scripture, on serving others, on being conformed to the image of Christ, as Connor read in 2 Corinthians 3. To set your mind on the things of the Spirit. So how do we do that? Well, the Spirit speaks, so we listen. The Spirit speaks, so we listen. Scripture is breathed out by God, and so we come before it for correction, for training, for reproof, for training in righteousness, that we be competent to do the work of God. And being immersed in Scripture brings about a response of prayer, of gratitude, of adoration, of praise, of confession of sin, of intercession for others. As the Spirit speaks, we listen. We live in the Spirit through our Christian community. Every time that Paul says you in verses 9 through 11, it's plural. How do you experience the presence of the Holy Spirit and the power of the Holy Spirit? Being around other people who are also indwelled by the Holy Spirit. That's why our our church community matters so much. We live in the Spirit by serving serving others through ministry and living on mission. In Acts 1, Jesus said, wait, don't share the gospel yet. And then later in Acts 1, he says, now go to the whole world. What changed? He said, wait for the Holy Spirit. If you want to experience the power of the Holy Spirit firsthand, Acts 1.8 says that one of the most profound ways to do that is by sharing the gospel with others. So start the conversation. Make the invitation. Make plans to be used by Christ in some way. 
Get uncomfortable so that you might see God do through you what you would never do on your own. If you are in Christ, the Spirit gives you life. Here's the hope that we'll end with in 1 Corinthians 6, 11, That such were some of us, such were some of you sinners dead in sin. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. If you don't know Christ, if you're not indwelled by the Holy Spirit, then you are still dead. But brother, sister, if if this truth has come to mind, if it has changed your life, then you now live because the Spirit gives you life. Let's pray.